How's it going? My name's Dan DeFrancesco. I am the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. I'm joined by Anthony Malikian, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology, and we are back for episode three of the Waters Wavelength podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we got a lot of topics to get to today. We're going to talk about the dark pool fines handed down to Credit Suisse and Barclays. We're going to talk about Anthony's enterprise risk feature, talk about the Super Bowl, uh, but first, we want to start off with some news that we talked about yesterday at the end of the podcast, the Sellside Technology Awards. You guys are all very familiar with them. They, uh, the submissions are open now for vendors to uh, put in their best products or solutions. And we thought it would be a good idea just to kind of give you guys a heads up of what we're looking for, both of us, you know, Anthony and I being on the judging panel. So Anthony's been at this a lot longer than I have. So I'm going to let him take the floor, kind of talking about what makes a good submission and probably more importantly, what makes a bad submission. So Anthony, how about you tell our listeners a little bit about what we're looking for in terms of the uh, Cell Side Technology Awards? Sure. Well, first of all, Dan, we talked about it last week and not yesterday. So, you know, accuracy is important with any uh, submission that people are going to hand in. So sorry. Apologies. Apologies for, for being so incorrect and so inaccurate. I will uh, shame myself later. Later. It's my job as an editor. Um, so, yeah, uh, I've been doing this for six and a half years, and we have a couple different awards throughout the year. We have the Cell Side Technology Awards, which I think is going into its third year. I could be wrong about that off the top of my head. Uh, we have the Buy Side Technology Awards. We have the Waters Rankings, which are voted on by our readers. And then we have the American Financial Technology Awards, which are only open to end users. But uh, so for the Cell Side Technology Awards, uh, we'll link to it on the site. Uh, you can click through. Uh, there will be a lot of uh, explanation as to the categories that we have and as to how you go about voting. But, you know, just a quick little just what we're looking for, for at, on the judging panel. Each judge is going to be looking for different things, obviously. But there are a few consistencies that, you know, always seem to win out at the end of the day. Um First of all, you know, we understand if you become a finalist, you know, when we whittle down the list, it's just kind of assumed that your your product is special. It's something unique. Um, you know, don't give too, don't spend too much time. It's a 500 word description we're looking for. Don't spend too much time explaining, you know, throwing in too much PR mumbo jumbo. We use those 500 words, you know, be very accurate and precise. Basically, what we're looking for is here's the challenge in the market that our clients are seeing. Here's what we developed uh, to roll out to our clients that help them to solve this problem. Here are the results that we are seeing. Um, give us some metrics. Give us some idea so that we can get around this. You know, we're, we have a lot of different categories to go through. Some for some categories, there'll be seven finalists that we have to kind of go digging through. Um, so just try and help us to better understand truly how your product is helping out clients um, in the submissions your client numbers stuff like that that's going to be confidential um, the descriptions that you provide will give us a good idea you are allowed in the description to say this is confidential but you know uh, customer XYZ uh, came to us and we helped them uh, improve their whatever I don't know I should have really came in better prepared with an exact example but we'll wait till next week for an exact example how about that uh, but that's what we're looking for what's the problem what did you create that's special and unique in the market what were the results 
Um, if you have any questions, um, you know, I mean, I, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Uh, you can reach me on my phone at 646-490-3973, or you can shoot me an email at anthony.malakian at incisivemedia.com. Uh, we will link to those, um, well, we'll link to the website or to my email on the on the post. Man, I did a great job of describing that, let me tell you, Dan. So I'm just going to kick it back over to you. That was that was good, you know. Whatever, it, it's all right. Not everyone's. This isn't everyone's cup of tea. It's okay. They understand. Our our listeners understand. Uh, quick note. I'll just piggyback on Anthony's point. As a judge, the one thing I look for is what did you do the past year. I want to know what was so important that you did the past year. You know, it, it doesn't. It's not that big of a deal if you had an accomplishment three years ago with your product or solution. What in recently a reason why we would give you the award? Have you done? Have you accomplished that you deserve this award? Uh, just so you guys know, if you're looking for where to submit, go on the Waters Technology page, top left corner under the awards tab, you'll see Cell Side Technology Awards. They'll also, once you click on that, there'll be a link, start your entries here. Uh, 28 categories, 26 of them are submittable. Two of them, the best product and best provider are voted on by us. Um, strictly, there's no submissions for those. Deadline is February 19th, Friday, which is two, just about two weeks from now. Uh, the event is held the night of April 21st, the Marriott Marquis in New York. Um, preceding that is the North American Trading and Architecture Summit, NATES, which is obviously a great event with a bunch of sell-side folks in it. Okay, so now that we've, you know, told you all about that, let's get into the news of the week. First story up is the dark pool fines that were handed down by the SEC and the uh, New York Attorney General. Not going to get into too big of details in the actual story because I think we did a pretty job, good job of covering it. You can check out John Brazier's story um, that initially spoke about the news and then my follow-up where I spoke to some analysts and uh, dark pool operators. Just to give you a quick sum- summary, $154.3 million total fined uh, between the two, which is the most of any ATS, $35 million for Barclays that they had to pay out to the SEC and the NYAG meaning $70 million for them. Credit Suisse, $30 million. The SEC and the NYAG, plus $24.3 million disgorgement and prejudgment interest to the SEC. So a couple quick takes from this. Talk to Anshuman Jaswell from Salent, who said he thinks that volumes will go down on dark pools for the next couple of months. He said it'll only last a couple of months, but they'll, they'll go down for a little bit um, due to kind of the uncertainty. Talk to David Weiss over at the IT group. He was not surprised by the ruling felt that this was more of a toll, saw this coming down, also said that he felt the users, the traders on these dark pools kind of knew what they were getting into. They knew it wasn't a pure and clean one. Also spoke to a dark pool operator who basically said two more dark pools will be fined before the end of the year by the SEC. That was uh, that was that source's, you know, the big, the big takeaway from that source. One thing that I want to touch on that I didn't talk about in the stories was something David Weiss brought to my attention was around the Martin Act. Now, for those of you that don't know, that's a piece of legislation unique to New York that gives the New York Attorney General the ability to pursue criminal charges and securities fraud without having to prove intent for a conviction, which is obviously different than other cases. So what's interesting about that is that while this could have been a Martin Act situation, no criminal charges were brought against anyone from Barclays or from or from Credit Suisse. So that was a point that uh, that David Weiss at IT Group seemed to be pretty interested. I think it's it's interesting. He also mentioned how the two people that were hit, one of them, William White, who was the head of electronic trading at Barclays, the other, David Johnson, who was his second in command. This is, according to him, he said they don't really seem 
two high-level guys. So it's kind of, are they scapegoats? What's the kind of situation there? So I thought that was all very interesting. Um, I think going forward, it'll be interesting to see how this all takes place because a lot of people, what Weiss and the Dark Cooperator both seem to say is that this was really pushed by the Attorney General. Now, if you guys remember, these charges first came down, well, specifically to Barclays, the charges first came down right around after Flash Boys had, you know, hit it big. It was a, it was around 2014, the spring of 2014, I believe the charges, or the, maybe the summer. But the, the Attorney General had made a statement how he was going strong against Dark Pools. So this was a little bit of maybe, you know, a reaction to that. And what I think is, is, uh, is interesting is that what a couple of people said is maybe it was kind of the SEC was dragged to do this by the Attorney General, not insider insider trading, maybe not something specifically that the SEC would be interested in pursuing as hard, but when the Attorney General is kind of pushing you from behind, you you need to. Anthony, what if any thoughts do you have on this whole uh, dark pool situation? Well, I guess you know the interesting thing for me, I guess, see coming out of this is you know buck uh, fifty four. It's a big number. So does that scare people away? Does that scare brokers away from being like, this isn't the, the fines that we have to worry about? Because, again, it wasn't anything that they were technic, um, uh, what's, from a technology standpoint that they were doing shady. Um, it was more about an advertising, right. right? Right. So as opposed to what happened to ITG, that case was settled, uh, I think, in the, in the fall. As opposed to what happened with ITG, this was basically false advertising, saying you're doing doing something and not necessarily living up to what you're saying. ITG had a whole insider desk. That's a whole completely different animal. This was nothing to do with like you know the rerouting of orders or anything essentially like that. So I guess then what we'll be looking for um, will be it's a huge fine that these two uh, firms took on as a, as a lump sum and then you know Kret Suisse uh, having to pay a little bit extra but does this lead them to back off their dark pools or is it you know yeah this was bad but the profits that we've been making off of this far exceed it this is a one-time hit we got to be better in our marketing of it you know we got to have a little bit better oversight in, on our compliance and legal team. Um, I guess it was to what uh, Weiss said uh, in the article. He told you that uh, if you see compliance people leaving as a result of this, uh, we know it's window dressing. If, as I suspect, you have the front office guys taking a hit in a couple months, you'll know at least that Credit Suisse, uh, that Credit Suisse is for real, they're taking it seriously. You know, It'll be interesting, I guess, to see what the personnel is, what the focus is that have to leave, what changes are made in the coming months and how they try and market that out to the street. And for traders themselves, does this change, you know, do they want to go and start rerouting their money to either other broker uh, led dark pools or independent dark pools? You know, who ends up winning out in this or is it just status quo? I can't help but think that it's going to be status quo. Um, but I, I don't. To me, it just the the ITG thing was, I guess, a bigger deal because of the practices of it. Um, for this, I don't know, but the fines were huge. So I don't know. Um, I guess that we're going to have to look back in a year and see how the numbers have changed. Um, it'll be good for analysts, uh, the analyst community, the consultants out there, maybe. They can kind of put together some uh, some you know actual hard numbers to show uh, who the winners and losers are on this, or if really nothing changes, if as 
Um, the select guy per, uh, said uh, that you know volumes come down for a little bit, but then go right back up. Then it was much ado about nothing. It was just a big price uh, hit, one time uh, fine. Everybody moves on about their day. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that at the end of the day, it's going to take a lot more to scare people away. So I think this will maybe affect trading a little bit, but for the most part, going forward, I think it'll be it'll be fine. Uh, to the point of the SEC, kind of quickly touching before we get to Anthony's story about enterprise risk, quickly touching on my. Uh, my feature this month, which was the Waters profile on the SEC CIO, Pamela Dyson. Uh, just so I went down, I had the opportunity to go down to DC to the headquarters, speak to Pamela. Uh, I had spoken to her when she was first appointed back in, uh, back in February of 20 of, uh, of 2015. And, you know, you, you sit down with someone from the federal government and for good or bad, you kind of expect them to be a little bit, you know, I don't know. Let's put it this way. When it comes to financial services, not the CIA, not the FBI, innovation isn't necessarily the first thing that jumps to mind when I think of the regulators. Maybe that maybe I'm a bad person for saying that, but that's just the way it is. But especially, you know, someone like Pamela that she was at the um the ITC, a smaller, um, not had thing anything to do with financial technology, but a smaller firm in their technology sector. Uh, having been there for a while, she almost put in three decades at the federal government. So you kind of maybe expect to have one type of person. Couldn't be wrong. Couldn't be more wrong about what she was like. She's very nice, very down to earth, very driven person, as you will to read in the uh, the story. The one thing that stood out to me, which I mentioned in my monthly column, which is in the magazine, was about shadow IT. And she talks about how when she first got there because of pre- previous previous leaders in the technology that different, the separate divisions, the enforcement division, all those different areas had set up their own IT sub teams to kind of tackle their own problems because they didn't feel like they were getting enough support from the overall IT. And while a lot of people, I'm sure there are a lot of IT guys out there and women out there listening right now that think I would just slash that right off the bat when I came in. Everything's going to go through me. Pam kind of recognized that these people understand the business better than me. They are embedded right into the system and they can help a lot more than I can. So I thought it was an interesting interesting take by her. And that's something that I had the chance to speak to the um, the deputy COO, uh, Jane Seideman from the SEC, who was involved with hiring Pam. And she said that one of the things that stood out for her is not only is she good at her job, if she's not good at something, she's willing to reach out and talk to someone who knows how to do it better than her. So I think that's a, the mark of a, a really good leader. I know, you know, Anthony doesn't know a lot of things, so he needs to reach out to a lot of people, um, which makes him such a great leader for us. So uh, those are just one of the takeaways, you know, as always with, with our podcast, we'll have links to all our stories. Um, you know, I don't know, Anthony, do you have anything to talk about or we can jump right into your enterprise risk feature if you'd like? No, I would like to say, well, first of all, you're you're absolutely correct. I have no idea what I'm doing out here. I'm just faking it six and a half years <laughs> in. Somebody's going to figure me out at fake, some point. Here. Fake it till you make it, right? Fake it till exactly. you make it. Um, you know, the one thing I would say, you know, for our listeners is, you know, so when uh, Victor uh, Anderson, our editor in chief, he's based out of London, when he uh, took over the reins uh, in 2010, beginning of 2010, um, the, we did a whole redesign both with the website and with the magazine. And, you know, one of the things that he felt was very important as far as the vision uh, as to where the magazine was going to go was we wanted to get, you know, C-level people on our cover from a wide uh, range of backgrounds, you know. And so uh, May 2010 was our first in the redesign uh, we had Steve Rubinow, who was then at the CIO of the New York Stock Exchange. He was right across the street from us, so he was a natural fit. 
Uh, from there, we went with uh, J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse, you know, some of the big guys. And from there, we really branched out to every form. This was our first government um, uh, person on the cover. And so that was interesting. And being how that Pamela's been in government for, what was it, 28 years? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that I thought was really, really, the uh, you know, somebody that would be in technology and want to have those, con- not want to, but, you know, live underneath those constraints that you have uh, in government IT. Um, you know, it was just a fascinating look. And that was the whole point of putting a different person on the cover was, you know, we hope that you, the reader, you know, some of you out there, you may be at the managing director level, vice president level, you know, you're in the development team, whatever, you know, you're trying to figure out how to work your way up the ladder. That's a little bit about what these profiles are about is to help you to kind of see, all right, these are the paths that these individuals have taken to become, you know, chief information officer, chief technology officer. We've had chief uh, executives, obviously, chief risk officer, chief information security officers, chief operating officers, chief compliance officers. We've run, we've run the gamut. But, you know, that's what those were kind of for, and I thought you did a great job with it. You know, um, everybody can read for themselves. Um, yeah, so uh, if you have any, if you, the listener, have any idea of people that might make for an interesting story, always feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. So let's transition now to Anthony's feature for the month, which was on uh, enterprise risk for alternative investments. I thought it was very interesting, but I didn't write it. Anthony did. So I'll let him take over kind of, I guess, to start, maybe hit on some of the high points and maybe something that surprised you during the whole process of researching for the uh, the story. Well, as you said earlier, you know, for me, I'm not that smart. So I need to talk to a lot of smart people before I can uh, really write an article and put it together. Uh, so for this piece, uh, I spoke with uh, BNY uh, individuals from uh, several institutions. So BNY Mellon Investor Analytics, which, as we spoke about last week, was bought by StatPro, uh, Finanalytic, uh, Imagine Software, Axioma. Um, they're all uh, heavy into the risk analytics space on the buy side. And then I also spoke with three uh, institutional investors from you know uh, Europe and uh, two from uh, North America. Um, you know, just kind of let you know a little bit how the sausage is made, I guess. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you, to give you an idea of why those three were kind of given background, and so you maybe have a better idea as to how we put together articles. Um, since they weren't attacking anybody, um, and, you know, since they were just talking about what they're working on, what they're seeing in the market, but because um, they're antsy to talk about their risk practices, uh, especially pensions uh, who have that public mandate. Um, I find it easier at times to speak more freely and honestly, get more uh, free and honest discussion going when the conversation's on background, when it's not going, when their names and their companies won't be attributed. Um, you know, because otherwise, they say, nope, our, our risk uh, systems are, they're just the best in class. We don't have any problems. There's no challenges in the world of. Uh, of of IT when it comes to risk analytics. So uh, I decided to provide them uh, with a little bit of anonymity um, in the goal, and I guess the goal of a reporter is to provide the most informative, useful article for the reader base. Um, I'm not a huge fan of not for attribution sources, you know, uh, background sources, but it's the state of journals, and you see at the New York Times all the way down to your local uh, newspaper covering you know, a reader base of a thousand, you know, people, a thousand readership. So that was the thinking behind that decision in case you read through and you wonder. 
you know, basically the premise of the article is just that, you know, hedge funds have continued to struggle to, to deliver positive returns. Um, but even still, uh, institutional investors are expected to allocate uh, 50 billion to 60 billion in 2016 to these uh, alternative structures, according to investment. So the interest is there. So how are the new ways that firms are trying to manage their risk as they uh, allocate more money to hedge funds, to private equity firms, to real estate funds, stuff like that? Um, you know, the key takeaways were that factor modeling is taking on greater interest because it can simplify risk down to a handful of factors. Um, and then, you know, the ability to evaluate volatility based on measures as one element of a broader risk management framework uh, is laid out by uh, BNY Mellon, a special report that they had put out. Um, but that has to also include exposure, correlation, stress testing. And then just the ability to cobble data together across different desks throughout the organization, especially when you have trading desks you know, located around the globe. So these are you know, some of the uh, challenges that firms face. You know, it's about 2,400 word article that uh, you, you can read to get the deeper dive of it. A little bit of an outtake, I guess, um, from for our vendors that might be interested, for the vendors out there that are listening that might be interested. Um, one uh, source from a pension fund, uh, they were saying that they're always trying to evolve their thinking um, on this, both from enterprise risk, but also how to tie that into portfolio construction and optimization. Um, so that's where they're looking to the vendor community to kind of help. It's it's a buy-build hybrid model, um, as you would expect. Um, so I guess, you know, going forward, um, even as vendors improve, uh, you're always going to have have the question of idiosyncratic ways that an organization views risk, defines risk, analyzes risk. So for enterprise risk analysis, a large part of that will always have to stay in-house. Even as much as people are looking to outsource, find help through third parties, the third parties are going to have to build flexible, customizable solutions that can integrate easily into a larger organization, a pension fund, uh, you know, private equity firms, uh, larger uh, risk um, uh, strategy. So I guess that, that those are the key takeaways uh, for me. Um, Dan, I don't know if there's anything that you had uh, in mind there. No, I thought it's very interesting. I thought it was a great piece. I love the uh, the physician, the physical uh, an, uh, analogy in the lead. Uh, and I think it just gets back to the bigger point around the more and more this data comes in and you kind of noted early on with the regulations and the new stuff coming in, the anal analytics becoming more and more important and that management of data. And that's a bigger theme that we've seen. I think it, one of the big things we noticed was in Waters USA. That was one of the first conferences where it seemed like analytics was cropping up everywhere. And it's kind of just, it's it's been on that same theme. So I think it's great stuff. Like I said, uh, definitely check it out. We, as always with our podcast, we include all the links to all these stories. So be sure to poke around the website and check out all of them uh, once you're done listening to, uh, to us. As we transition now into, like we always do, into something a little bit more fun and more pop culture-y, we would be remiss without mentioning the Super Bowl, which is Sunday, uh, which in case you weren't aware, the New England Patriots are not playing in. Uh, if you missed it, they lost to Peyton Manning. Um, did you hear that, Tony? I said the Patriots lost to Peyton Manning uh, in the uh, AFC Championship game. I don't yeah, know if you remember. Yeah, I heard you. Okay, just checking. I just want to make sure that you're aware. Uh, so 
San, um, it's in San Francisco. Uh, I guess technically San Jose is the actual stadium where it is. Maybe not sure about that. Not too good with California geography. Uh, but the uh, it's Carolina Panthers against the Denver Broncos. Kind of old school, new school. Cam Newton, the young, flashy, going to be the MVP of the 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 uh, the season this year against Peyton Manning, Hall of Famer. Kind of the the old the old guard. Uh, Anthony, what are your thoughts on the uh, the big game? I think that we're pretty close to agreement on this, but um, I think that Carolina is just going to run roughshod over them. I think that, you know, just too much firepower. Cam Newton is, I'm hoping that this is just a breakout performance. It would be, after the season he had, it would be such a letdown, even as a sports fan. Like, even if you love Peyton Manning, you know, you'd like to see that next stage happen. Obviously, if you're a hardcore Peyton Manning fan, you don't want to see him lose, but it would be a real shame for Cam to have the season he had and then to have a huge letdown here. I think they're going to destroy him. The only question I think it's going to come down to is, you know, do they lay off the way that they did, um, what was it, in the divisional round? The divisional round, also against the Giants, against the Colts. They've kind of had history of kind of going up big and then kind of cruising towards the end and making it closer than it needs to be. Yeah, so hopefully they just keep their foot on the pedal, really attack throughout. My prediction on a score would probably be 38-10. to 10. But I do have a question for you, Dan, and I want to put you on the spot with something. What's here. that? Put me on the spot. I love it. You are an avid commercial lover and you should read his editor's letter on the sell side technology sub site there uh we will link to it too but he put tony, together tony I'll, I'll pay you the 20 dollars for that plug after the podcast podcast i promise so he put together a list of the best super Co- super bowl commercials and how it can connect to capital markets read the article it explains what he goes through there but how about this who do you think will have the best commercial on come monday which company will we be talking about, do you think, because they're going to put out the best commercial? And we have no idea who's going to be putting out a commercial, but if you had to take a guess. Okay, so first, as a preface, because some people say, oh, well, you can look up the commercials. I never take part in that. I always like the surprise. I was never the kid that was trying to find his Christmas presents before Christmas. I'm not going to go on YouTube and look up at the 26th. So you got to figure, all right, who are the big guys? You got Budweiser, Bud Light. You have uh, Volkswagen is always known for, for coming out. Uh, Audi usually has some fun commercials. If I had to pick the best, oh, wow, that's that's tough. Um I don't know. I I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in Volkswagen and uh and and Bud Light. Um, Bud Light, you know, it's it's hit or miss. Not Budweiser. Not to be mistaken, Budweiser. I hate those stupid dog and horse commercials. People are like, oh, they're so cute. I love seeing the. What's the name of the the dogs? The uh, not the dogs. Dalmatian. What's the name? No. What's the name of the um the horses? The, the big horses. The Clydesdales. I could care less about the Clydesdales. I could care less about the dog that gets knocked off the back of the truck and finds its way home. Don't care. Don't want it. I'm out. I'm out on that. Unpopular opinion alert. That's that's me. So if I'm having to, if I have to pick one, Volkswagen had a great ad with a kid that dressed up as Darth Vader a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember. He was trying to make stuff go, and then the dad started the car. They also had a great one uh, about a guy that uh, that loved that spoke with a Jamaican accent, but he's from Minnesota, and they could, didn't know why. And then he drove around in his VW Bug, and he was like, "Yeah, man, it's it's." hilarious very good too uh so they have they've had two good ones and audi i I like audi too so i know i'm kind of all over the board if i had to pick two i'd say bud light and volkswagen are going to be the two that are come out with the the best commercials um that that so that's my thoughts on that as oh sorry go ahead tony how about a prediction uh, for the game prediction for the game i think carolina 
just smokes him. I don't think it's any. The only the only way I see Carolina not doing well is is that you know this is kind of the world's worst kept secret, but they have absolutely no options at wide receiver. Ted Gidd Jr. is a fraud. That guy drops 75% of the passes that are thrown to him. Outside of Greg Olson, they have no, you know, they have, they have no options. It's just Cam being Cam. So if the Denver defense can really exploit that, I think Hakeem uh, 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 Tlaib, What's the uh, Talib is going to be covering Olsen, who's you know he's a very good uh, he's a very good safety. So I think if if he can shut down Olsen and Cam's kind of in trouble and can't really do the whole scrambling thing, you might see something. But Denver has to play the perfect game; they have to keep it close because if Carolina goes up by two scores, they're not gonna, Denver's not going to be able to do anything. Denver, you know, Peyton Manning had one good quarter against the the Pats, and then they kind of buckled down. So that's my thoughts on that on the game. But like I said, every you know, looking forward to checking it out. Also. Quick program. Uh, actually, I'm no. I'm sorry. I was going to do a quick programming note, but that's not for two weeks. So forget I said that. Spoiler alert. You'll find nailed out it, later. Dan. You yeah, nailed, nailed it. it. So uh, like we talked about in the top of the show, SST awards. You can find the uh, the description. You can find the awards top left under awards. 28 categories. Um, deadline is Friday, February 19th, which you still have a couple weeks to get those in. Held the 21st. Uh, other than that. Uh, I don't have anything else to add. Anthony, do you have anything else to add before we uh, let the listeners go? I'm all good. All right. Well, have a great day. Have a great weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you next Thursday. But thanks for uh, sitting in.